Hi, I'm Sahel Janasari, a migrant rights researcher and activist. I'm here to host the wonderful Qualitative Open Mic podcast series. This episode is part of our Qualitative Conundrum series, and qualitative research is something that always brings up a lot of questions for researchers. How many people should I talk to? How should I interpret what they say? Do themes emerge, or are they actively created? At the Quark, which is also called the Qualitative Applied Health Research Center, we aim to make space for these debates and tackle this really fundamental questions that plague qualitative researchers. So today we're very lucky to have with us Michael Larkin. Uh, Michael, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me. Um, I'm a qualitative researcher. I'm based at Aston University in Birmingham. A lot of my work is in and around youth mental health and the relational context of youth mental health. So peer relationships, families, rela- um, relationships with professionals. And, um, and most of it is phenomenological in focus. So I'm interested in understanding people's experiences of, um, of distress, of the support they receive, of the relationships that give some context and, uh, and meaning to understanding all of that. Great. Thank you. And you are here to help us solve the conundrum of reflexivity. And you're going to tell us all about it. So I'd be really grateful if you could start by letting us know what, what does reflexivity mean? What is it in the first place? And I think it's more than one thing. I think it's helpful to notice that we, we attend to it and we, we bother with it because partly it's a problem. It's a problem because, um, it's a way of signaling that researchers in the human and social sciences are part of the same system. They're the same kind of entity as the things that they're studying. Um, and that means it's not easy for them to step outside into some sort of objective space in relation to their objects of study. They, they bring stuff to their observations. Their observations have effects upon them. They're in a reflexive loop. And although we might theorize that that's true for all disciplines, it's probably less of a problem for botanists or geologists. Um, so, it, you know, partly what it is is a, um, a methodological problem, something that we have to think about um, because we are dealing with data which are messy and complex and real world and um and we can't dis- disentangle ourselves from that so uh, often when we talk about reflexivity in qualitative research we're not so much talking about the problem as a set of practices or attempts to solve it and and so when we talk about reflexive practices we're talking about all the different ways that people approach that problem what they do to try and reveal or accommodate or engage with um, that messiness. Great. Thank you. So you mentioned that perhaps there's not one meaning behind reflexivity. So could you go a bit into the different versions or perspectives of reflexivity? So in terms of responses to the problem or this kind of ways that, that one might engage with reflexivity as a researcher there's quite a long tradition of trying to carve it up into 
typologies. There are some great papers by Linda Finley about different ways that we might think about how to be reflexive or different kinds of conceptualizations of when and where to be reflexive in the research process. And and you sent me a more recent paper when we were chatting by email, which does a, a similar kind of thing. Often when people are dividing it up in that way, they're, they're, I suppose they're trying to make the task more manageable and they're trying to set out a menu of possibilities so that it's less overwhelming. And I think that's helpful. Um, so, you know, one of the ways is to think about what you as an individual bring to the research. Um, another might be to think about um, how your connections with other people in the research um, have an impact upon it. Um, a, a broader view or more sophisticated view, if you like, might be to think about how to involve um, at a sort of meta level those other points of view in the development and presentation of the research. So a more kind of integrated or systemic kind of, of reflexivity. Um, sometimes that has led people down a, um, a route to something that's quite radical, quite deconstructed, that has got multiple voices in it, that looks less like a typical piece of social science research and something that's hedging what it's saying that is offering you different routes into the text and asking more of you as a reader. Um, so it's like there's a spectrum of approaches. So sometimes that kind of individual approach is characterized as being almost like the simplest end, you know, that, that, you know, in inverted commas, all you're doing is, um, is admitting to what you bring to the work. Um, but, I think it, another way to think about differences here is to think about the different kinds of research that people do and the different kinds of relationships that they have to their data and the different kinds of teams that they work in. And, um, and so there's layers of complexity that go around that so that even an individual bit of reflexive work could be very sophisticated. Great. Thank you. I was curious when you were talking, I was thinking, well, Reflexivity might be something that we also do in our everyday lives as part of trying to function in a society. I just wondered what are the things that we might be able to draw on from our everyday lives to help us be more reflexive in research? That's a really good question. So, you know, I guess um, we probably all have some experiences some knowledge some skills which are relevant to these practices um whenever we notice that we are managing our identity or code switching or dealing with different sorts of social situations by bringing different aspects of our persona to the foreground or putting it in the background um we're we're doing a certain kind of positioning aren't we so um i think all of that is familiar to most most people um and that's particularly relevant when we notice how we manage our identities and and their impact on the research during the data collection phase of work where we're usually meeting with and connecting with other people and we're wanting to um usually as qualitative researchers create a comfortable space for them 
Um, but we're aware that we bring certain kinds of um, identities, um, perhaps as an insider, perhaps as an outsider, um, certainly with some professional baggage. You know, if I say I'm a psychologist, that sets up a set of expectations in people that um, another social scientist may not have to deal with, for example. Um, so I, I think all of that's really interesting. I'm finding it a little harder to think of analogies that that sort of we can draw on from everyday life that um, fit with the later stages of the research work. So the kind of stuff that we're engaged in when we're interpreting data and writing about data is striking me that that's quite a sort of skill specific sort of task but i don't know perhaps you had something in, was there something that came to mind for you it's a very good tactic to turn the question on the interviewer <laughs> is there something that came to mind i think sometimes when we are maybe for instance in a work situation and we might get an email which we are not happy with the tone of or something like this then perhaps mm. we are in a way interpreting um that email and often for instance i would i might be like okay well i have a very visceral negative reaction to this but is that partly because of who i am is that because of my history of receiving i don't know journal article rejections or something like this so i feel like perhaps maybe that's an example of how in our work situation that we might interpret what someone said and use our identities to think about that yeah i think that's helpful so i, I guess there are lots of situations in which we might be able to notice that the emotions that are evoked for us by a context or a situation or a relationship um are are in part unique to us because of we've what we've brought to that um and th that might cause us to pause and reflect a little bit on how to respond um so you know we might not draw on our initial reaction because we know that that is probably not the right reaction for this situation as, as natural and comfortable as it feels <laughs> yeah yeah that's good i like that and i suppose the thing that I think often gets missed out of the cycle of of, of this um, sort of talk. Like you know, we're, we're talking our way through the research process, and we're, we're focused very much on what does the researcher bring. And um, but what I like about your example is it's, it's starting to get us thinking about what does the situation call forth from the researcher. And I think that's really important, and it often gets missed. Um, in these kind of typologies of reflexivity, which tend to focus very much on, you know, how does the researcher affect the research? But I think it's really helpful and important to see it as a loop. Um, so your example is really nice for that because it's making us notice that it's partly about how we react and and um, and how we respond. And that, you know, in a research context, that might change what we do next or how we approach the next participant or how we theorize the next problem. So I think it's really good to be mindful of that stuff. Great. Thank you. I'm glad I came up with a decent example. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Not as bad as me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
We've talked a bit about reflexivity in terms of data collection, data interpretation, but is there a space and a place for it much earlier in the process? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I do with our um, our health psychology trainees in the first week of the course is, um, is get them to think about what are the things that have led them here and what things might have led researchers to where they are so that when they're reading published research they've got some sense that these things didn't just appear out of nowhere but actually they came about as a consequence of people's life histories their interests the opportunities that were afforded them by the structures that they were educated in and then employed by um, the institutional priorities of their host organizations the kinds of things that funders wanted to fund, the kinds of collaborators that were available to them and who wanted to work with them. All of that stuff is is there before you've put pen to paper on an ethics application or a funding proposal. Um, so I think it, it it's complex because so much work is actually done in very large teams. Um, so a lot of the methodological writing about reflexivity sometimes seems very out of step with that. Um, but I think it's useful at least to notice what, what has got us here and, and what are our, what are our, our assumptions? That's really interesting. I think when you were talking about that difficulty of we did this project in a team of 10 people and I happened to be writing the bulk of it as a exploited postdoc but um it doesn't make sense for me to say well this is just my position this is how it's affected the research so i wonder is there have you seen any examples of reflexivity on the group level especially something that might be might have been published i've, I've never come across it i haven't seen anything where i think oh that is a good model for what this could look like and i think we're really missing that i think what we tend to do or what tends to happen at group level is we tend to do a kind of at best a kind of notional check-in where everybody checks their baggage in <laughs> in the method section you know so there are three psychologists two psycho two psychiatrists and a social worker uh they've all got expectations about um the importance of family relationships for youth mental health and um, they all believe that services could be better, you know, a sort of position statement that captures something of, of the team's orientation. Um, but I don't, I don't think I've seen anything that is more, um, rounded than that. There, there are some nice bits of dialogical work. So there are bits of reflexivity that are written with two people. Um, and um that can work really well um i think that there's a couple of examples of of it in the first wave of of the reflexive turn so i think the, there was a book edited by steve walgar and i'm fairly sure there's one or two chapters in that book where they're written in a kind of dialogue um one of them is Trevor Pinch in dialogue with another version of himself, actually. So it's kind of it's him thinking about two different ways that he might orient towards the topic. Um, and there's not that long ago, there was a special edition of the journal Qualitative Psychology edited by 
Linda Thinley on reflexivity. And one of the papers in there had some dialogue between um, two co-authors, I, I seem to remember. Um, so that can be done and that's sort of manageable within the format. But once you've got three, four, five voices, the risk is you've lost the reader or you've created a kind of chaos. So you need a, you need a different a different way of characterizing it. It's interesting to think what that might be like. I suppose you could characterize some different groupings within your team and the ways that they have played out um, and the different kinds of um, stake and interest that those uh, those groupings reflect. And you can create space, I think, for those different voices to come through in relevant bits of the paper, couldn't you? That's a fascinating idea. So we have a ethics group mm. at KCL that we try and look at how ethics can be improved and how the ethics process doesn't necessarily match up to participatory research or something like this. It's called Inspiring Ethics. Mm. And we recently submitted a paper where we talked about how our group worked with each other and we categorized ourselves. I guess it was a bit violent in that sense, but we put ourselves coming from different positions as the survivor researcher or as the stalwart researcher, the traditionalist. And it was really interesting because firstly, people were like, well, actually, I have multiple identities. I'm coming from multiple perspectives and this crude categorization doesn't work. However, it did provide a nice narrative and a nice way of thinking about the multiple perspectives within our group. So I think there's definitely a lot of potential there and i wondered and this is i guess my question to you how do we get from that group level to thinking about some of the history you mentioned and some of the institutional context and the institutional identities that we make on take on and how that might affect our research yeah it's difficult to know how much of that we can make visible in a in a paper um but i think it it is quite helpful sometimes to understand where things began and, and what was possible. Um, I mean, if, if I were giving a talk about a piece of um, empirical work at a conference today, I, I should probably say a little bit at the beginning about the context of our phenomenology of health and relationships group at Aston in the same way as you've described your group um, because that's something that has been available to me and has been developing um, all the time I've been at Aston the last what is it now five six years and um, that's been a tremendous resource so it's enabled a lot of learning around creative methods a lot of um, risk taking around design um, a lot of in, uh, engaging with new ideas and, and sounding out for all of those of us in, involved in that group. And so that's a, an organizational resource that has shaped what I would feel confident doing, um, has made me a better researcher, I hope. Um, and, and I guess the flip side of that is one could also reflect on the kinds of obstructions <laughs> that there have been. Um, at any particular point or the kinds of opportunities that have been um, available to you that might not be available to someone else. So, you know, I think there's um, there's a range of stuff which make things 
possible and they and they do shape your perspective but it's quite difficult to pin down exactly what um yeah i, I think it's tricky absolutely and i appreciated the thinking of okay well there's some spaces for instance a talk where i could perhaps go into that the constraints of a paper are different and i think that's something useful for our listeners and our students or whoever to think about the different types of reflexive ticket that can come out in different spaces i kind of wanted to move us on a bit and just ask you a little bit about a problem that many qualitative researchers have when we start out and probably quite far into it where there's this reflexivity bit we've been told to do reflexivity it's a good thing and sometimes it's done at the end of the project sometimes it's done in the write-up sometimes even if it is done it's forgotten how can we build in reflexivity so it's meaningful and it influences and is part of the entire qualitative research project i think what's really tricky is how and where to make it visible the practice of it in terms of creating spaces where we are able to reflect on these things and engage in dialogue around them is not that difficult if we've got um like-minded co-researchers peers supervisors if we've got a place where we can talk about how things are going and how we're responding to the problems that research throws at us we've got a place where we can do some reflexive work i think what's really difficult is figuring out what an audience might need um and partly it helps to know who your audience um are <laughs> and and so you know i think you would you would probably solve the problem differently for different kinds of communication and outputs as as you suggested i was i was implying that when the in the answer to the last question so there are there are journals which are extremely tight with their word limit which are very topic focused that are aiming to catch the attention of busy clinicians uh people at the applied end and there's relatively little space in those sorts of publications for um this kind of extra detail and um <clears throat> and in those sorts of journals often what you're really fighting for is to create enough space for your um your participants uh point of view to cut through cleanly enough um that it reaches the audience with some some impact and some nuance there are other places conferences blogs research group meetings where we can be more dialogical more reflective and somewhere in the middle i suppose there are more qualitative friendly journals that have got longer word limits where there might be some expectation that you you do display or perform <laughs> some reflexive work um in your write up and and what that looks like is again is probably going to depend a lot on who you think the the audience for the for the writing are you know your readership um want different things for different reasons a uh, um a methodological readership are probably 
quite happy to hear lots of reflections on process and decision making and the dynamics around that, how you resolve problems, because that's helping them to think about how this methodology or this way of working that you're proposing or illuminating or expanding, how that might actually work in practice. So the, the reflections there are really helpful with that. Um, but if you're writing about findings, then it might be that what the readership really wants is something a bit more back down the simple end of the reflexive spectrum, you know, a bit more understanding of actually what were your expectations and assumptions? How did you try to manage those, you know, like in the Karen Dahlberg sense of bridling, you know, kind of not getting carried away by them, but recognizing that you, you can't, you can't travel without them. Um, and, and, and what effect do you think they, they did have? Um, and if any, and did they change? You know, what have you, what have you learned? I think all of that is useful to a reader, even if you're just giving glimpses of it, because uh, it's just putting some context around the claims that you're making that helps them to understand that you did see yourself in it, um, or yourselves, because you're probably a team, um, and you have thoughts about your roles in it. Thanks for that. I wondered in talking about and performing reflexivity, is there perhaps a tension with this sort of desire to perform it and be academically rigorous and to have good quality work, but also perhaps revealing too much about yourself, revealing very personal things? I shudder to think what people would think of me if they read my phd uh reflexivity section good thing that people don't read phds <laughs> yeah i mean a, a lot of the the work that people do that's most most honest and i guess exposing is in their phd thesis isn't it that's the because you 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 know only two or three people are going to read that um and yeah i don't think there is a requirement to treat it as a confessional um i think there's a requirement to be open about what was difficult though um but i think you can write about that without necessarily revealing um things that you'd rather not reveal yeah it's tricky and and, it, and also i think it goes back to Something you said earlier when you were talking about the way that you'd kind of tried to play this out in your group. And as soon as you allocate categories to your group members, everyone is uncomfortable with the category because, of course, identities and people are more complex and dynamic than that. Um, so it's not that you're, you're bringing a kind of essence of yourself forward when you're writing reflexively and and saying this is authentically really what happened it's more that you're noticing you're trying to sort of notice the the role that you had in the work and you're and you're saying well this is the aspect of me that was really brought forward here and that uh, or this is the aspect of the research that really affected that dimension of me um and so you know it's not all of all of you <laughs> it's not it's not your whole being is it it oh, i don't know if this, this is helpful or not 
No, I think that is helpful. I think it's interesting to see how we approach research and how and where we draw the boundaries. And I think reflexivity is part of that process. It's interesting to say it's not all of you. Sometimes I feel in the heat of a research project where this is all of me. Right. But I think it's just a useful reflection, I suppose, on who we are in a research context and maybe to have some more healthy balances in our working practices. And then in framing that question, you, you picked up on, on me using the word performance or, and, and, you, and you didn't look comfortable with that. So is that, is there some friction there between the idea of being authentically reflexive and, and something that feels more performative? Is that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I was uncomfortable with that. I think it's difficult because I, I'm keen to, I guess, draw my boundaries, be clear about what identities and what parts of myself I'm, I'm bringing to or not. Yeah. And I know that equally, how genuine is reflexivity all the time? Because sometimes if we are really, really reflexive, we might not do the research or we might I don't know. If you follow it through, there are some quite drastic consequences that could come from a real deep dive introspection. And often, I, so I'm coming from the, a lot of um, post-colonial perspectives. And if you really follow the reflexivity through the post-colonial setting uh, con- lens, there are some things that you might not be comfortable with at the end of it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think that is probably highlighting something about the need to be, I, I guess it's a degree of pragmatism, isn't it? The need to be pragmatic about how much of yourself you put into the work. It is work. Um, and, um, you know, we are doing it because we get paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> and that the and that means that the output is perceived to have some value and the process is perceived to have some value and um but like all kinds of work it doesn't own us and we don't we don't have to love all the parts of it <laughs> um you know we have to often have to tolerate some discomfort um around certain aspects of it and it's probably good to notice those um points of discomfort but it might not always be so helpful for us to bring them to the foreground all the time because we want to get paid at the end of the month we want to finish the task it's pretty pretty tricky yeah i think it's uh, also good life advice sometimes as well perhaps something that i often struggle with um i think we're coming towards the end of our time Really interesting areas we've gone into. I just wanted to ask a quick question about if someone is interested in learning more about reflexivity. I know you've mentioned some resources so far, but are there any key sort of texts or podcasts or whatever that you think would be really good to listen to or read? 
Yeah, I'll have to go with Reed. So there's, I mean, if you, if you Google Linda Finley's work, there's just a string of great papers by Linda. Um, and so that's a really good place to start. She is, I think, probably the best person to start with because she's really good at conceptualizing what she thinks reflexivity is and the different ways we can do it. But also she's really good at doing it. So there are lots of examples of writing where she is actually showing you how and where um, she's thinking about her relationship with her, her participants or her preconceptions about the topic or the impact that the um, the affective weight of the work is having on her. And so I think, you know, that would be my um, the first thing that comes to mind really in terms of a, a recommendation. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for all your thoughts and and for coming on the podcast and giving us your time. It's really, really appreciated. No, thanks for having me. And for the listeners out there, we are continuing with the Qualitative Conundrum series. We've got the last episode is the next one, and that will be with Ollie Williams. So please tune in for that. And thanks again, Michael.